Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Palladium Podcast. I'm Ash Milton, managing editor of Palladium Magazine. Today, we are interviewing Jeremiah Johnson, co-founder of the Neoliberal Project and host of the Neoliberal Podcast. You can look up more about the project at neoliberalproject.org, and the Twitter account is at neoliberal with a zero. So, Jeremiah, it's the middle of a pandemic. I keep seeing think pieces about the end of neoliberalism, state intervention, lots of these sorts of things. Uh, I want to check in with the Central Committee. How are you guys coping with this? My favorite thing about the pandemic, honestly, Ash, is that every single ideology is convinced that the pandemic has proven beyond a shadow of a doubt that their ideology is the only one that can get us through this. And weirdly, they're all right in in a sort of way. You hear the libertarians talking about how um, the, you know, the biggest thing is, oh, the FDA is overregulating things. The CDC is terrible. You know, we can't get things mask production fast enough and blah, blah, blah. And the thing is, the libertarians are right. And, um, you know, the, the nationalists are all about how China is terrible and awful and China has screwed the world over. And, you know, I... I wouldn't go as far as some of the nationalists would, but certainly China bears some of the blame here um, in terms of covering this up. And the socialists will talk about universal health care is the reason that blah, blah, blah. And, and you know, on, yeah. you, you look and, and you're like, well, the eye with the, uh, <laughs> the, you know, institutionalize the payments. And well, so on. And, and again, you know, some people will take any excuse to talk about universal health care. But at the same time, you've got to think this if we had figured out health care a decade ago, it probably would have been beneficial for the current situation. Um, so it's one of my favorite little tidbits about the whole pandemic is that mm -hmm. everybody's convinced that they are vindicated. Their ideology is going to come out of this triumphant. And it to me, it just looks like, you know, people seeing what they want to see to some extent. Sure. Yeah. I mean, you could maybe say that insofar as most ideologies light upon some problem or other or some potential solution, like you can hop on different aspects of the crisis and, uh, you know, ride the horse to town, so to speak. Uh, in that case, what what part of your ideology has this crisis affirmed as good and true? Um, you know, I think there's a, a little bit of everything there in that I think that neoliberals are very well attuned to kind of a a welfare state capitalism model. You know, we are capitalists, but we are not... Uh, libertarian minarchist kind of capitalists we are very much okay with visions of the welfare state and government intervention where it helps the market along where it helps people and, and helps capitalism to do what it can do best and so in that sense when you have something like a a giant shock like a global pandemic you know you see things like uh checks 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 coming out of a coming out of econ Twitter and actually becoming policy that, hey, we're just going to send people checks like all over the country. We're going to have ridiculously generous unemployment benefits because after all, you know, this is this is not a morality play. There's no moral reason that people can't work. It's just a pandemic. You know, there's there's very little danger here of uh, of the typical worries of welfare in that like, oh, what if we make people lazy? What if we do, you know, so that's one of the things I think has been interesting that's come out of uh, the kind of technocratic neoliberal sphere is that, you know, in order for the capitalist system to ride this out without massive disruption to, to people's lives and massive suffering, 
we need to be sending people money. Yeah, it's kind of like all, all these uh, debates that took up a lot of headspace uh, in the last 30, 40 years probably have suddenly been, or have suddenly evaporated, right? Um, it's an interesting time in that way. You know, I, I kind of want to take a moment here to just uh, let you present the project. Um, you know, we've kind of touched on the that there's some kind of ideology here that um, you've, you've hinted at your positioning. Uh, I'm going to say to listeners, we're not going to spend too much time on this because there is a lot of writing out there. Um, just, you know, uh, a, a good piece, How Modern Neoliberals Rediscovered Neoliberalism on the uh, Neoliberal Substack. We will share that in the links. But Jeremiah, if you want to give us a quick rundown of the project and what makes up your political identity. Sure. So if you've, you know, existed on the internet and you talk about politics on the internet, you're well aware that neoliberalism is when things are bad. And the worse they are, the more neoliberal it is. Um, and so that's it's yeah, it's it's a little bit of a joke there. Um, but this is actually kind of how the whole project got started is that idea in the wake of the 2016 election. Um, and leading up to the 2016 election, people online were talking about Bernie Sanders versus Hillary Clinton. It dominated conversation for a while. And one of the weird things that you saw get thrown around was that, you know, people who like Hillary Clinton are like neoliberals, um, you know, that Bernie Sanders has the true progressives and the socialists and all the real left leaning people. And anyone who likes Hillary Clinton or is, is in that part of the Democratic Party is a neoliberal. And it, it's it's very confusing in one sense, because you think about like, you know, Milton Friedman and Friedrich Hayek and and all of these people who might otherwise be thought neoliberals. And you're like, hmm, how much overlap is there really between Hayek and, and Hillary Clinton's 2016 campaign platform? You know, we doesn't seem like that much. But what came to be was that if there is kind of a group of people who said, OK, if you're going to just kind of try to slander us with like, oh, there's this political swear word, neoliberal, you know, we're going to kind of embrace it because why not? If you insist that being kind of a capitalist who also likes the welfare state and and certain other, you know, open globalist features, if you're going to be like, oh, that's a bad word, that's neoliberal. Well, uh, some of us decided to just embrace that. Um, yeah, I mean, the interesting thing about your uh, subculture um, is, you know, I think you're kind of seeing this everywhere on the spectrum. Uh, obviously, people in like the Bernie Sanders movement were trying to reclaim words like socialism, which had been used sort of as curse words against them on the right. You know, social conservative and populist memes sort of play the same role. Um, and the interesting thing with you guys is you, th there is this recognizable, um, brand or, uh, mode of discourse, right? It's very online. Like you can recognize this when you encounter it, like using posting, uh, as a, you know, X posting as a verb, things like this. But then the actual, um, framework of principles and the figures you're invoking, are in a way like the most establishment, I think, for most people's point of view. Uh, and I think that's probably what people see as almost contradictory, right? It's like, how can one take a culture that is, you know, if there's no other point of unity, the idea that it's kind of out is that it's kind of outsider and disruptive. And now this is being combined with, you know, figures like uh, Hillary Clinton or Bernanke or, you know, going further back people like Hayek. 
how fundamental to your project is this uh, sense that you've come out of uh, an online culture that did not exist in these previous uh, iterations or generations? I, I think it's pretty fundamental, to be honest. Um, one of our founding ideas, the, the whole reason this is a project that we kind of dress ourselves up as the neoliberal project. Why did that even happen rather than just a group of people decided to, you know, have fun on the Internet and on Twitter and Reddit and ironically call themselves neoliberals for a little while? Why did it actually become a project is because one of the central ideas we have is that all politics is identity politics. Identity politics is a a slur that's used sometimes, or, or I don't know if slur is the right word, but it's an insult certainly for a particular brand of politics um, in a particular part of the political spectrum. But the further and further you look at it, almost all political conversation is really I identity signaling and identity group formation. And this goes on the left, on the right, you know, certainly you can think about identity politics as the standard thing where it's like, oh, um, certain ethnic minorities or, or gender politics or LGBT politics, all those are considered identity politics. But Trump's rise was was to me a story of pure, almost identity politics of the white working class who felt, you know, that they had been beaten down by coastal elites and educated people. And, you know, they, they were not a fan of the D.C. establishment. And that was very much an identity that Trump played into. And one of the things that we recognized when you have this thesis that all politics is identity politics is that the far left and the far right, as of 2016, had done an incredible job of building an identity online. Bernie Sanders had this incredible amount of energy. Um, The DSA had successfully rehabilitated the word socialism. Um, And there's really not just a set of policy beliefs, but an identity to being an online, you know, DSA, socialist, progressive Bernie Sanders supporter. It's an entire identity and a set of like tribal kind of uh, kind of you could you could you could get a, a sense of community out of it, really. Yeah. And the same thing happened with with like MAGA Internet where, you know, the the Donald on Reddit exploded out of nowhere and was was ironic for about like a a hot second, you know, maybe a week before people actually swamped it with unironic Donald Trump supporters and MAGA Twitter, you know, blew up and it very much became a, a tribal identity and and a cultural thing to just be a part of that community. It was really an identity to be part of that. And we realized that if you were a more moderate Republican or a moderate Democrat or someone with a set of kind of um, what I would call neoliberal beliefs where, you know, capitalist but not libertarian level capitalist uh, in favor of globalism, you know, in favor of social liberalism, there really wasn't any identifiable rallying uh cry for those people there was no flag to rally around there was no you know banner under which they could organize and to me that was actually a problem for that set of beliefs you know neoliberalism is often thought of as this dominant omnipotent omnipresent ideology but in the age of the internet you go online and you're surrounded by the dsa left and the nationalist right and we were like where's the banner that people who yeah. do not what belong can I put to either of those Twitter camps handle? can flock to 
because because not having a banner actually matters. People, you know, there's no way to organize if you don't have an identity. So to us, you know, yes, neoliberalism is kind of associated with these huge establishment figures. But in an age where the establishment seems to have less and less power, certainly the Republican establishment has been burned to the ground and no longer even exists in a meaningful sense. And the Democratic establishment has been fighting off this insurgency for four or five years. In this age, this, you know, quote unquote establishment politics also needs a sort of online rallying cry as well. You know, even Joe Biden's team is trying to make memes about, you know, his aviators and him eating ice cream and, you know, Diamond Joe and, you know, all all these cool things because you've got to have yeah. some kind well, of identity and, and, um, to stick to. I, I think with this project, you know, when I think of uh, online neoliberalism, let's say, things like housing come to mind. And one of the things that I found useful is that a lot of the discourse, um, even if it sort of started out of these national level politics, there's been this focus on cities. And I think city building is very interesting because that's where you're doing actual work of governance, right? Um, you're having to build institutions, infrastructure, that there's a lot less room for fudging things over or just uh, channeling energy into endless policy briefs. Um, it's a lot easier to tell if you're failing to run a city properly. Um, and certainly at Palladium, you know, a lot of our coverage has been about, on the one hand, cities or regions sometimes, and on the other, at like global orders, you know, the American world order or China's network of relationships. Like, what is the operational space, mm -hmm. so to speak, of this project? Well, so one of the higher level goals, what I'll call one of kind of the moonshot goals, is to create a distinct neoliberal identity in the same way that there's now a, um, <clears throat> a, a an online socialist identity, that there's a, this entire ecosystem of being a socialist online. And, and you know, when it becomes online, it, it filters into the offline world as well. You know, people used to say the Internet is not real life, and that's increasingly less and less true. Um, things that happen on Twitter increasingly matter. You know, it's it's still not yeah, it's it's still not exactly like you know. Obviously, Bernie Sanders didn't win the nomination this year, so Twitter is not real life in that aspect. But Twitter definitely impacts real life. So the moonshot is to create a distinct neoliberal identity that actually creates political change in the same way that you know when when a senator casts a vote, they have to think about, okay, how are the progressives going to get mad at me about this? Am I going to get angry letters from the DSA? And, you know, it, a senator has to think about that. If you're a Democratic senator, if you're a Republican senator, you now have to think about, you know, the, the Tea Party people back, you know, 10 years ago, or today, the, the MAGA people. If you're a Republican senator and you're casting these votes, you have to think, are these people going to get pissed off at me? Because they are an organized group of people that exert pressure. The idea is that we want there to be an equally countervailing force, that there's an identifiable neoliberal set within America that, you know, maybe both Democratic and Republican senators have to think, if I vote against this, am I going to, you know, get primaried by a neoliberal or am I going to get 10,000 angry emails from these people? You know, that's that's what makes change happen. Um, so, so, so in that case, no. you know, what is uh, keeping in the spirit of like that this is a very online discourse? Uh, what is the Twitter bio length ID card of this is a neoliberal? Um, well, one thing I wanted to mention 
quickly just because that's I, I mentioned kind of the moonshot the big uh, ambiguous goal because that's a very long-term goal the other thing that we're doing is that we're organizing on a city by city level and I wanted to mention that because you brought it up you brought up cities um, cities are very much like you said less ideological um, than the national level politics and they're also just ideological in a different way but you know it, it's harder to hide behind ideology and that's why you see a lot more cross-cutting you know red gov- red governors in blue states and blue mayors of red areas and and vice versa um, because you know if you get things done on a city level uh, you could just get things done and ideology isn't quite as important but we we have oh God something like 30 or 40 local chapters now um, around the country and in and in various countries I think we're in Canada the UK Sweden Australia um, Sing- I think we have one in Singapore now. Like they're adding fast enough that I actually can't remember all of them at this point. But so one of the the second thing we're doing, other than the grand vision of creating this, um, you know, long term identity, but the supplemental part to that is organizing on a city level. I, I very much admire the DSA in terms of how they organize and the success they've had because. You know, it seems like you can't open a newspaper, you know, in California and read about a local law without having some DSA member being quoted because you know what they do? They show up to all the events. They show up to all the protests. They show up to the city council meetings and the zoning meetings, and they do a great job of getting their views heard at those meetings, getting promoted by the media. You know, it's it's there's hundreds of local chapters of DSA all around the country. And um, and that's a model that honestly I would emulate a hundred percent. You know, I, I want you know neoliberals and Yimby activists and and things like that also quoted in all of these newspapers, showing up at local you know city council events and things like that. Um, so those are kind of the two things that we're focused on: is is the very very large identity focused question, and then the more concrete mm-hmm. city level yeah. organizing so question. i think it would be useful um that was a great overview at, at this point i kind of want to talk about how you see yourselves um in connection with this american-led world order right which a lot of people have described as neoliberal in different ways um a number of figures like reagan and thatcher like clinton and bush have all been described as forwarding some kind of neoliberal agenda. Um, so maybe, you know, just as, as a start, how then do you see this world order, which is called neoliberal, do you identify with it in some deep sense or particular institutions in it? And do you see your project at somehow tied up in renewing it? On a fundamental level, I don't think that our, our project really encompasses geopolitics as much as it encompasses national level politics. Um, There's kind of various camps within the neoliberal community in terms of how should you approach foreign policy? You know, how should you approach the world order? Are are we hawks or are we doves? There's there's both of those camps. There are neoliberal hawks and there are neoliberal doves. If you want to just talk about the naive kind of how much interventionism should we have question. Which, um, which, which, by the way, that's it. Always annoys me that so much of foreign policy gets sure. stuck up on just the question of interventionism. When that's that's one aspect of like what you called kind of the global r- world order. Um, 
what I will say is that I think neoliberals almost universally are, are globalists and would embrace the term globalist and believe in the idea of an interconnected world being a better world, a world with trade and immigration flowing uh, relatively freely, um, a, a world that you know has international institutions. Um, so I, I think neoliberals tend to be fairly pro-institution um, without getting into the specifics of like every single action that every single institution has ever taken. You know, neoliberals are in favor of things like um, the IMF and, uh, you know, the UN, the, the European Union, just in general projects that attempt to bring the world closer together and, and to build a more connected world tend to be viewed favorably by neoliberals. Would you say that a world order exists? I mean, you'd have to define world order. Uh, clearly, international institutions exist, and there is some sort of functional balance of power in terms of how states relate to each other. Whether you want to call that a world order is is kind of a question of semantics to me. Well, let me ask it in this way. To what extent is this network of institutions dependent on American power specifically? Um, that is an interesting question. Um, I'm... I'm not particularly a scholar in this area of like how much the UN would would cease to exist and and you know how, how the World Health Organization could stand up without American funding and things like that. It, certainly to some degree um the Pax Americana uh has allowed international institutions to flourish to to some degree. Um I don't feel like I could give a great satisfactory answer on like exactly how much that is. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, it, I guess it gets into the question of to what extent American economic and soft power on the one hand and military power on the other is necessary to back up these institutions. So you can take Europe, for example, right? Um, one narrative about why there has been basically peace in Europe since the Second World War is that, uh, you know, common markets were built between first Western European countries and then these scaled up into the European Union. And because these institutions existed, um, the divisions that could lead to war couldn't arise in the same way. You know, maybe this is an open question now. The other one, though, is that uh, Ameri or European powers have for the most part been kept militarily weak, with a couple of exceptions like the UK and France. Um, but even those are integrated into an American military structure. And so how can there be war when these countries barely have... Uh, the infrastructure needed to really have very destructive wars, uh, again, with the, the exception of a few countries. And those are two different narratives, yeah. I think, about what undergirds, you know, for, for countries that are part of this American alliance or, um, you know, umbrella, um, there is always ongoing debates uh, here in Canada and European countries and in Australia and Japan, right? There was a, a debate there the last few years about to what degree they should uh, rebuild military power um, to counter the Chinese threat. Um, mm -hmm. It's, you know, I generally think it's most useful to look at these sorts of institutional questions uh, in terms of self-understanding. So I don't think your two explanations uh, in Europe are necessarily contradictory. I think they can sure. both be They're not true. meant to be excluded each yeah. other, I should say. And, and I'll throw in a third theory, which is, you know, democratic peace theory, which, you know, says that in general, democracies do not go to war with one another. 
Um, and, you know, post-World War II, almost all of Western uh, Europe was um, a, a democratic. And then you obviously had a giant chunk of Europe that was not democratic, but which has become more so after the end of the Cold War. Not not perfectly so, obviously, but more so democratic. You've had some successful transitions there, you know, in the Baltic states and in Poland and, and some other areas, some less successful transitions like Russia. Um, but in general, democracies, w- whether we want to quibble about here's one specific instance that, you know, we can debate whether it counts as a democracy or blah, blah, blah. But I think it's pretty clearly true that the correlation is there, that democracies generally don't go to war with one another. Um, so, so, so yeah, that's an interesting, um, yeah, finish your thought. I, I think we can stay on this topic for maybe a few minutes because uh, it might be a good case study. But uh, just in general, I think all of these things tend to play into each other. I, in my one overarching view of geopolitics is that it's really complicated. <laughs> um, I think that too often people try to have one gigantic overarching view of like, here is the one theory that explains everything. You know, here is the one theory of what's going to work, what's not going to work, that explains all of history. And, and I think a better approach is to kind of try to take the kernel of truth um, that exists in many different theories and, and try to synthesize them. And that it doesn't make for kind of a, a snappy one minute answer on a podcast. But, you know, it, it's probably true that increasing trade between European countries led to less conflict and that democracies tend to, in general, not uh, come into conflict as much. And that America's military might kind of watching over the continent may have played a role. And like you take the kernels of truth from many different theories without accepting any of them as the gigantic overarching explanation that that, you know, has to be true for all of time. Yeah, well, I I think the reason that um, these accounts are useful is because institutional narratives you know, they don't come out of a vacuum. I think very often they are created by power actors, let's call them, after they have established some kind of relationship. And the degree to which the narrative accurately depicts how a certain set of institutions maintains itself uh, is, you know, it, it probably tells part of the story. It often doesn't tell the whole story. So you know, on, on democratic peace theory, you, you kind of preemptively brought up the notion of you know, one can sometimes quibble whether something is a democracy or not. But, and I mean, another objection might be, well, but sort of the things that we consider liberal democracies tend to be countries that are already part of this broad American alliance. But maybe you can go even further, right? Let's look at the role of an institution like the CIA in interfering in elections um, around the world, particularly during the Cold War. Uh, you know, uh, Chile uh, and across South America, but also in Europe, in, in Italy, um, in Israel, you know, there, there's been, uh, I, you know, I don't have the full list here in front of me, but we know that there has been ongoing um, interference by any standard. And one can even quibble about whether this was necessary or not, but it definitely seems to be the case that democratic institutions, insofar as they started to move against the interests of established power structures in this American alliance were often suspended or influenced or, you know, in some other way, they weren't allowed to operate as normal. And that seems to imply that, in fact, the liberal democratic narrative is kind of a, you know, a useful and partially true narrative. 
but that doesn't account for the fact that um, the power on which that world order is based might in fact be more uh, military and more something like a network of allies and perhaps even vassals centered around America. Um, and I, I guess I just want to put that objection to you and uh, pick your brain. And I mean, I, I I honestly don't have a ton of response to that other than yes, you know, that certainly America has meddled in in other countries' business and it's well documented, you know, how many times that has happened. Um, like I said, in general, the actual neoliberal project is is kind of more focused on the idea of national politics and, and influencing policy at a national level rather than kind of the grand geopolitical vision. Because, geopol- I don't know, geopolitics tends to be very cross-cutting. You know, you have people who are hawkish, dovish uh, across party lines. You have people who believe in kind of this theory of American might and that might be, you know, uh, the far left believes in the theory of American might, but believes that it's terrible. Neoconservatives believe in the theory of American might, but believe that it's great. Um, it's uh, those kind of things are so cross cutting that it's hard for us to kind of come to a uh, it's hard for us to act like there's a definitive neoliberal position right. on on some of these issues. You know, I, I could give you my particular take on them but it wouldn't really be me coming from the official neoliberal you know word of word of the official neoliberal account this is more just i I could give you my personal um, take but identity politics or political identity politics tends to solve these issues is by this very straightforward frame of who's in and who's out so you know i could ask maybe are is bill crystal or are the neoconservatives um good members of the neoliberal camp or are they just out? That's it. That's an interesting way to put it, because if some again, I don't think that there's any disqualifying foreign policy um, that, that would disqualify you from being a neoliberal in that. Yeah, like, that's an interesting clarification. It, that's not an obvious one to me, because, well, again, I think there are neo neoliberal hawks and neoliberal doves. And most of the actual project that we do is focusing on you know, national level politics, you know, what should we do about, you know, zoning and land use in our cities? What should we do about the welfare state? How should it be changed? How should it be reformed? You know, how should we balance capitalism with the need to ensure fairness and regulation across different areas of the economy? Those are kind of the things that we tend to focus on rather than these grand global Mm -hmm. questions of the, you know, the American world order and whatnot. So if I was to exclude Bill Crystal from the camp, which I don't know if I would do, but it would probably be for more mm. domestic policy reasons um, that, you know, I, I think social liberalism is pretty inherent to our project. Um, and so if you are not to some degree socially liberal, I, I'm not sure that you would call yourself, at least mm-hmm. in our nomenclature, well, let's a talk neoliberal. let's cities a bit more than... Um... I think that city politics, uh, you know, we've touched on this already, but even during the pandemic, a number of mayors have, you know, been regularly in the headlines. Um, we we also have this rise, I think, of West Coast political consciousness. I discussed this somewhat with Sam Hammond uh, when he was on the podcast. 
do you think that cities are will rise uh, in terms of the national politics as well? Um, like, for example, could could we start mapping certain cities as uh, more important, even in a formal sense, than certain states? I think this is probably already true on a just you know basic power politics level. Obviously, New York or Los Angeles are extremely important, and the cultural power of Los Angeles outweighs most of the rest of the country. Yeah. But on the on the actual level of disrupting policy or new institutions of governance, do you think that the cities are going to become more important? So I think it's already happening. You know, when we were discussing before uh, we actually started recording here, you asked me, you know, where I lived, and I said New York, and you didn't ask for mm-hmm. clarification. You knew that that meant just New York City, not the state. Um, if I if you live upstate, you actually have to clarify. I live in New York State, and so you know, there's. One, you know, kind of trivial, trivial example right there that, you know, New York City has fully, you know, surpassed the idea of New York State in terms of importance in every dimension, cultural, economic, political uh, and so forth. And I think that that's going to be increasingly true. You know, the world in general is urbanizing. This is everywhere. Europe is urbanizing. Asia, Africa, Latin America, the United States. Everywhere is seeing a shift from rural population to suburban and urban populations. And this is a a very, very long-term trend. It's happening everywhere. And so more and more important policy is going to be set at the city level. Now, you know, we can debate specific instances of that. You know, are there specific instances when state governments are going to try to override city governments? Yeah, that happens all the time. You'll see conflicts where one party controls the state and wants to explicitly bar the city from raising minimum wage, for instance. You know, I I think about certain red states where, you know, a specific city, which is blue inside the red state, will raise the minimum wage and the state will respond by saying, no, across the entire state, the minimum wage is just this. Mm -hmm. And cities do not, in fact, have the power um, to. So so that's an interesting feature, at least in the federalized American system where, you know, we devolve power, you know, on a federal state and city level. There's going to be inherent conflict that happens as cities grow in importance. Cities are going to try to flex some of their muscle. State governments are going to try to flex back. But the long-term trend is only in one direction, I think. And and you'll see this more and more. You know, People want to go where the jobs are. The jobs are increasingly in cities. And in fact, it, it, it's there's an interesting... Um, chicken and egg question because the jobs are in cities, but increasingly we can work remotely, but people still, you know, young urban professionals who are the most likely Mm -hmm. to work remotely still want to be in the cities anyway, because now it's just where the culture is, you know? And so people now locate their headquarters in cities because that's where all the young urban professionals will be. Um, the, The agglomerations at this point are too big to ignore. So I think that some of the most important policy questions are going to be policy questions like housing, um, zoning, and and very city-specific level questions in the future. Those things can only get more important over time. Yeah, well, and the thing that makes America interesting here is that it has a national political structure or a power structure that includes a number of cities. So the alternative would be a place like 
France, where Paris is everything. Or in the UK, London has kind of consumed a, a lot of the, the rest of the country's uh, wealth and power. In America, you have New York, DC, you have San Francisco, you have Los Angeles, um, you know, places like Chicago continue to have influence. So there is not one city that decisively wields power uh, over the entire place. And so when I think about something like a West Coast political consciousness, um, there's the Bay Area is this place where optimism, especially technological optimism, has kind of remained alive more, I think, than in the rest of the country. Um, but it's it's used that to sort of paint itself as above politics. Uh, perhaps this is changing. Um, I think clearly on the local level, it is changing on issues like housing. This, yeah, this drives me crazy because this is one of my favorite subjects to rant about, honestly, is that, is that um, San Francisco tech people are so bad at politics and they they want to change the world. You know, you go to talk to anybody with a startup in San Francisco and they're going to talk about how they're changing the world and, you know, we're revolutionizing society and we're doing this and we're doing that. And I just want to scream at them like, you can't beat a bunch of 55-year-old boomer hippies in local politics. Like, how the hell do you expect to change the world? Yeah, you can't go to you, Mars, but we can't build a new headquarters. You, down you the can't road. win a zoning decision against, you know, to, to use the, the internet term of the hour against a bunch of Karens who have nothing better to do than show up and harangue the, the local city council people until they stop, you know, housing from being built, until they stop your headquarters from being built. Like, you are losing the pettiest, dumbest political fights against the lowest level opponents. Like, you know, and, and you talk about changing society. And I mean, on some level, obviously, yes, tech has changed society. I don't want to downplay tech, but tech is so remarkably bad at politics and ignorant of the ways in which they are bad at politics. Um, there's because so much of the Internet initially was like permissionless mm -hmm. innovation. You know, I, that's a big phrase in uh, in tech world. You know, people just built on the Internet and it was this kind of shared standard and nobody really asked for permission. Just you went and did things and you built a service and maybe it did something amazing. And like it was so new that the feds never even had time to regulate it before it existed and had 50 million people using it. You know, nobody could regulate social media or chat rooms in the first, you know, when they were first introduced because they were so new and developing so quickly that like tech moved faster than regulation. And so they developed a theory of politics that was basically like, we can ignore politics. Yeah, we can just sort of work out and decentralize our way out of having yeah. to deal with political power. We're just, we're going to develop things and it doesn't matter. We're going to change the world without ever having to pay attention to politics. And then once tech... Once tech as an industry matured and they actually are hundred billion dollar companies now or, or whatever their various, you know, Apple might have actually hit a trillion at some point. Um, once they're these gigantic companies and they are now big enough to actually have to worry about politics because they have the power of small nation states, they discovered that they're really bad at it because they ignored it for so long that that default attitude of pretend like politics doesn't exist, you know, got them into trouble. Yeah. Do you think that um, Amazon HQ2 near DC is the beginning of a turn in that case? Um, it's interesting because I'm thinking more in terms of Mark Zuckerberg getting dragged in front of Congress and like having no idea, clearly having no idea how to respond to like 
you know, number one congressman acts at just asking absolutely horrendous, awful questions where, you know, somebody wants to rant about how they're, yeah. they got a spam email one time and why didn't Facebook fix that? You know, he didn't know how to respond to that. He, but he also didn't know how to respond to the legitimate questions. And, you know, he wasn't prepared at all. And you, you can say the same thing about when uh, I think Jack Dorsey's been in front of Congress and had a, a very similar experience. But tech in general, just they don't know how to play local politics. They don't know how to play national politics. And it's because they haven't had to. You know, their industry was built on permissionless innovation. When it comes to Amazon, that was actually, I think, a pretty slick, um, pretty cynical political set of maneuvers in that they announced they were going to build in, you know, the the D.C. area, Northern Virginia area and New York City, the places they would have, you know, they would have built there all along. If you just ask them, nobody's going to give you any incentives. Where would you go? They'd say, ah, well, uh, probably New York and D.C. because we're already West Coast, you know, so we'll, we'll build up some East Coast presence. And they got all of these states and cities to kind of do this ridiculous song and dance and kiss their feet and, you know, all that stuff. If I was a leftist, I'd say lick their boots. Um, and then basically extracted huge amounts of concessions from both locations and then chose the places they were going to go anyway. Yeah, well, the intro, the, the obvious thing that um, tech and especially companies like Amazon, the other fangs, uh, can do well is getting information. Um, and with the HQQ battle, it was very interesting because clearly a lot of information was probably handed over at that point about what cities' strategies were for expansion over the next 20 years. Different incentives were given. Um, and you know, almost regardless of where they were going to build at that point, they now uh, probably had an extremely good idea of what the urban landscape is going to look like in the next 20 years, probably better than almost any other private or public organization uh, in the country, probably better than national level organizations. But I think the thing you're kind of hitting on here is that, um, you know, having data is one thing, but then you kind of have to have the institutional coordination to build a machine and mobilize on that data. Um, you know, I, there's that famous Zizek quote about the problem with these, you know, direct democracies and so on is who has time to go to all these meetings. And the point of political machines is that you basically outsource <laughs> all the going to meetings to a group of people that are basically dedicated apparatchiks. Yeah, I think machine politics is honestly underrated in, uh, in the historical discourse. Machine politics worked for a long time. <laughs> if you were going to look at the Bay Area or, or the, say, the broader tech uh, industry, do you see anyone who's bucking the trend? Or if there is a machine politics, do you have some guess as to where it would originate? I mean, I, I don't think modern politics is machine politics. I just think that machine politics gets a bad rap historically. You know, um, this is this is diverging from, from the topic. But when I think about like... Uh, what a working class movement looks like, for instance. A lot of people want today's progressive left or today's socialist left to be like a working class movement. When I think about like a working class movement, you know, there's a lot of people on the progressive socialist left who want their movement today to be like a working class movement. But in a lot of ways, the DSA is more like an upper middle class class project you know it's it's a class project more about people who have liberal arts degrees who feel shafted that they're not getting the upper class lifestyle they thought they deserved um you know 
if you want to see a real working class movement, go look at like Boss Tammany in New York City, you know, mobilizing immigrants from the day they got off the boat, you know, and these are all dirt poor day labor, you know, day laborers, you know, real immigrants, real working people. And that's what machine politics did in New York City was organize these like, you know, quote unquote, unwashed masses of uh, immigrants and day laborers and working class people. That's what machine politics in a functional sense was, was wresting control from the old New York families, in a sense, and giving it to all these working class people. Um, you know, yeah. it's, it, Robert Moses, too, I've seen has had a, a resurgence of interest uh, in the last couple of years. Well, yeah, Moses is his entire thing. We could go, we could do a whole two hours on of Moses. Course. But uh, but yeah, like it's interesting just to think about the the difference in what a working class movement looks like back then as opposed to today, because I don't think the DSA today is a working class movement. I think, you know, Trumpism is much closer to a working class coalition than than the DSA is. Um, so that that's my own little mm-hmm. hobby horse. But but yeah, it's 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 interesting to think about these questions. Yeah. Well, why don't we um, I think it'd be useful to keep uh, going a little bit on the, the West Coast topic, because this is something that Palladium, especially being a Bay Area based project, um, you know, discusses this a lot. I'm sure you saw Mark Andreessen's recent It's Time to Build piece. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, and so at Palladium, we had a, a response piece by Isaac Wilkes called It's Time to Build for Good. And, um, you know, the response here was kind of, yes, there is building to do, but inherent in that is a question of what are we trying to build? What is the vision of society um, that we're going toward? What is the thing we're trying to reverse engineer when we're trying to figure it out? Because building just another app, I think, obviously doesn't really get at the spirit of what Andreessen was trying to communicate. And even building housing, you know, just building housing in and of itself, obviously, there are a lot of immediate beneficial effects. But I think that people want to have, I guess, a broader vision than that. Like a city like San Francisco or or the Bay Area in general, um, what distinguishes it to me is the fact that it had a certain optimism about the future that existed more there than in a lot of the rest of America. And, you know, from what you're saying about them being very bad at politics on this very local level, I think the translation error was something like, okay, you have a vision, and for some reason, you haven't been able to properly reverse engineer the process of how do you have a San Francisco um, that can be a hub and an engine, you know, where the people and companies and institutions can be built that can actually bring us to that future. You know, it's fine to just have a SpaceX or something building like rockets to get people to Mars. But well, there was an there was an interesting phrase you used there, um, reverse engineer, um, and I I'd almost take take that and try to deconstruct it because I don't think you actually can reverse engineer what makes a city special. Um, you know, when you think about oh, let's just look at what San Francisco did back in the fifties or sixties or whenever they attracted all that talent and eventually became Silicon Valley. I don't know that, you know, it's it's not like a playbook where like, you know, Gary, Indiana can just become the next San Francisco if sure. they do X, Y and Z things. You know, a lot of how I think about cities is as like emergent order or, you know, order without design. 
yeah, and kind there's of irreducible a, qualities to what's yeah, going on. Th- there's kind of a seeing like a state James Scott argument here that where you try to overly design things, you're going to optimize for the wrong quality or or the wrong aspect and end up just you know with the with something that you didn't expect. That you know there's kind of this emergent order um, to to how things actually develop. And I, I would push back a little bit because a lot of th- there was kind of that idea you presented that, well, we could just build more housing, but we also have to think about all this other stuff. And honestly, to me, I'm I'm I flirt with just being a housing reductionist that literally you could solve every problem in America by building more housing. Now, I, I don't know if that's literally true, but I like to think it's poetically true or, or true enough that we should be saying it anyway. <laughs> Where- yeah, well, like, so let's let's think about the mechanism here. Are you saying something like when you build more housing and you have more people able to congregate in an area, the downstream effects of that are so strong that you now have the infrastructure to solve all these other problems? I, I really believe that, honestly, um, because I believe that the agglomeration effects from cities are are really, really large, um, that, you know, when people are together, good things happen. Um, and I, I've joked before that, you know, this was before the pandemic, but that the biggest economic problem in America is San Francisco's housing market that that is the Mm. single biggest thing wrong with our economy. And if we could fix that, it would, you know, literally fix everything because you have all these tech people that want to go and be a part. They want to be near where the talent is. They want to be near the funders, which is a big thing now. Um, It's not just where the software engineers live. It's where the funders live. And can you get meetings with those people? And they want to be meeting with other, you know, founders. They want to be meeting with other entrepreneurs. But, you know, they would have to go pay $4,000 to live in a toilet for, you know, per month. And this is honestly like how many people have not moved to San Francisco because of that? How many people have not founded a business because of how absurd rent is in San Francisco? Um, and, and not just San Francisco, but to various degrees, this is true in, in the, major- the vast majority, I would say, of, of large cities in this country, that there's not enough housing in New York or San Francisco or Los Angeles or, you know, Chicago's a little better, but it's just, it's so true in so many places that you think, you know, people talk about endemic problems in America that entrepreneurship is down. I honestly think you can blame some of that on the price of housing in cities. People talk about inequality, especially intergenerational inequality, that millennials are much worse off than their parents. I think it's because, you know, a, a huge part of that is that their parents have had housing prices appreciate for decades and millennials have not been able to get in on it because urban housing is so expensive. Like, I think you can literally run through all of these different issues in the American economy, whether it's the dynamism, intergenerational inequality, um, like so many problems would be better. It, maybe not solved entirely, but have this link to urban housing. Yeah, well, it's it's an interesting thing. You know, even whenever I go to, to the Bay Area, it's amazing to me, even with all of this right now, how many people still tough it out and the amount of interesting people that congregate there. And this goes back like a long way, right? There's always been this weird California thing. Um, the, the example like of Jack Parsons uh, is the 
archetype of this to me. Are you familiar with Jack Parsons? Um, yeah, I think Jack Parsons was the, the, the rocket engineer, right? Yeah, well, the so he was a rocket engineer. He had some of the first organizations working on early rocketry. Um, he had ties to Von Braun, but he was also involved. Like, he, uh, his wife's sister um became the uh lover and confidant of l ron hubbard of all people <laughs> uh and parsons was involved in like weird like alistair crowley linked occult circles you know it's the sort of stuff that translates so easy into conspiracy and the thing is that i think a lot of things that people read as conspiracy is literally just there are these hubs where all the interesting people start to congregate right like vienna in uh, the like early 1900s, right? It was an example of this where- Oh yeah. I mean, you, you can take this all the way back to the literal Renaissance and like the Italian city-states were grew in power because they were places where people congregated. It was some of the densest, um, <clears throat> it was some of the densest development at that time. And like you had all these artists and like inventors and scientists and tinkerers all being around each other. And that was like literally the roots of the Renaissance. Yeah, you kind of um, end up having a lot of America's success built on their ability to take the most interesting people and convince them to emigrate, which obviously was made easier by the chaos in Europe. Um, yeah, and having them congregate in cities is a, a huge advantage and ends up being an advantage for the country. Um, you know, when it comes to San Francisco... Uh, insofar as a San Francisco that manages to fix these problems and restart the the city engine, so to speak, would impact America. Like, what would your vision be of the best case scenario for if San Francisco over the, overcomes these problems for the city and the country? Um, I mean, if I'm going true blue sky, like absolute best feasible scenario let's say there's some absolute tidal wave resurgence of like yimby politics and you know it, it becomes a thing and all the nimbies are swept out of office and the yimbies come into office that probably takes i don't know five to ten years is is like the shortest possible timeline even if you are a raging optimist and the idea of san francisco to me that would be incredible is is uh, just a San Francisco that builds. You know, if you look at an aerial picture of San Francisco, um, especially I think from from the West, is it? I'm not I'm not a San Franciscan, uh, but like it's just this like tiny little dot of downtown with just waves and waves and endless waves of single family housing in like these ugly monotone rectangles. You, have you have you seen like uh yeah I've, I've seen the pictures you're talking yeah, about it's just from, it's I incredible like over the, the percent ocean. of the percent of the land that is just monotone ugly rectangles of single family housing as far as the eye can see and then in the distance you see this little dot of downtown with some high rises in it so like yeah if you could just densify that somehow and and allow people to live there you start to get these um these virtuous cycles where more people are going to move to San Francisco, more people are going to found companies. The companies that are founded are going to have access to more talent. You know, there's going to be a greater interchange of ideas. More immigrants are going to be able to come into San Francisco. And the kind of immigrants that, you know, typically 
come into that city are like very tech focused immigrants who have big ideas. They come to America because they want to change the world. You know, it's still one of the greatest things about America is that is that we can attract that sort of talent. And so you have this, you know, San Francisco and the Bay Area and the tech industry have been an incredible growth engine for this country. And it's just, it, it, there's almost this what if scenario where you could have imagine like what if we had had twice as much of that because San Francisco, you know, had doubled in population rather than rather than doing what it did. You know, I, I'd have to look it up, but like, yeah. I'm pretty sure San Francisco added more units in like the 1960s than they have for the last 40 years combined or something like that. Um, it, it's I, I don't have that in front of me, but yeah. You know, well, it, it's something along those lines. The downstream here is not, you know, it's not as if, oh, you you double the, the size of San Francisco and now you double the output of San Francisco. Like, it's way, way, way more than that because any institution that is built, that is successful and that scales properly is going to be doing exponentially more than, uh, you know, ju- just adding to the output that's already going on. Um, I think that the innovation issue here and obviously this is a very you know this is a topic where there's a lot of um dead discussion i think but the the idea that america is no longer innovating and that kind of the american alliance you could say is no longer innovating properly i think is is important right there there is that famous um we're we're innovating in bits but not in atoms uh things like materials engineering or things like nuclear energy um, yeah, have kind of de- decayed well, in the last. And this is years. this is a very like Robert Gordon argument, right? That uh, Robert Gordon wrote that book, um, "Rise and Fall of American Growth," where he talks about that um, lays out a very very detailed case over like seven hundred pages that America's technological and economic growth is no longer impressive since like nineteen seventy. Mm-hmm. The last fifty years of growth, we've had this like steady two percent economic growth, but like. Society hasn't changed all that much. Big, te- big technological changes are absent in the way that they weren't from like 1920 to 1970 when there were massive revolutions in how people lived. Um, yeah, I know Wolf Tyvee, our editor in chief, has a take that everything important in America stopped working at, I think it's 1973. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, th- this can kind of be tied back into if you want to get into like Ezra Klein's Why We're Polarized thesis, you, you could try to tie this into, um, you know, our institutions started to go downhill about the time Nixon got reelected and Watergate happened um, and, mm-hmm. and political polarization went on this unstoppable slide towards hyperpolarization about that time. Um, and and I, I mostly buy Ezra's polarization thesis and that, you know, I, I, I take the kernel of truth from there without accepting literally everything he says. Um, sure. But but there's an interesting tie into our political institutions decaying and becoming more polarized and our technological growth slowing down. And, you know, there's a lot of people who have these takes. Tyler Cowen, uh, you know, had this take a, a decade ago. Peter Thiel gives talks about this. Um, and and, you know, I, I don't share a ton of politics with Peter Thiel, but I, I think that he's right when he says the stuff he says about like we were promised flying cars and we got 140 characters or whatever, you know. Um, yes, yeah, that's the, the famous uh, soundbite there. Um, I, you know, with the institutions, I think that kind of opens up a topic which should be interesting, and that's um, 
policy wonking versus institution building. Uh, and I want to get your thoughts on this because I've noticed when I've interacted with uh, self-proclaimed neoliberals that there's kind of a fondness for the wonk, um, what would one call it, the wonk aesthetic, the wonk framer mindset, you know, evidence-based policy and so on and so forth. Yes. And at Palladium, I think one of the things we've tried hard to do is essentially purge the wonkishness mindset insofar as the problem seems to be that um, coming up with solutions is a very small part of the game. So, you know, Milton Friedman was someone who was very good at this, um, you know, the negative income tax or um, uh, vouchers for schools and this sort of thing. He could reduce these complex problems to these very simple policy solutions that almost made the listener feel like, wow, why was everyone so overwrought about this to begin with? But obviously, having a solution is usually, without thinking of the structure, without thinking of the institutions, of the power interests, and of how a particular solution fits into that broader whole, I, I think that it just ends up becoming a wish list. And so the reason that in institutional analysis and even doing deep history on like a lot of how these institutions were built, you know, looking at something like DARPA or the Apollo project and actually getting into how these things were constructed is so important because these are the people who had a particular vision and in a lot of cases, a very grand vision, like the Apollo project, right? The space race was not popular politically when it was first put forward and it took a decade or more of cultural work uh, to lay the foundation and build a political machine that could ultimately actually start building rockets and creating a national politically backed strategy. Um, I, I guess I'm interested to hear how you guys are thinking about this question of institutions versus just policy making. So I definitely think it's fair to say that we have kind of a, a wonk aesthetic um, <clears throat> in terms of the identity that we we encourage, you know, what one of the very first kind of inside jokes or an identity markers was um, was the fact that we all worship central bankers, uh, right? Both ironically and and, and sometimes unironically. Um, there's a there's a big thing about how Bernanke is like a saint and and should be president, God emperor for life, and and all of that. Uh, there tends to be a lot of unironic Fed worship. Um, which is funny because so many corners of the internet, uh, you know, the populist right and the populist left tend to hate the Fed so much that sure. that it's it's amusing to turn it around and love the Fed, which if I'm being serious, I do actually love the Fed. The Fed is one of the best run institutions in America. Um, it's one of the only parts of the government that has resisted, for the most part, this kind of uh, institutional decay, I would say. Um, the Fed has been very innovative over the last decade. When they were required to change, they did change in major ways. Um, and they've still retained a lot of expertise and, and, and independence. But not to get too far on the Fed. Um, but we, so there is this kind of encouragement of like, yes, we, we love central bankers. We love listening to economic experts. You know, we go and read, you know, policy papers and blah, blah, blah. And that's our aesthetic. That's who we are is the, the wonkish neoliberals and the technocrats and things like that. So I, I won't deny that. But I also think you bring a valuable point that institutions exist at a meta level above policy. Um, so I, I consider myself a big institutionalist. 
um, one of the most fascinating questions in the world, probably the, the queen of all economic questions is, you know, why are some countries rich and some countries poor? You know, why do right. some countries the, have the AC Moglu and Robinson? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Starting. Point. Yeah. This is the Ajamolu and, and Robinson theory, uh, you know, that institutions explain uh, why nations fail, why nations succeed. And, you know, it's not mm-hmm. the only theory. There are theories that, you know, you could read uh, David Landis and, and he'll talk about culture. You could read like Jared Diamond and he's going to talk about a uh, geographic determinism. Um, and and so, so these theories are valuable in different ways. Um, again, you can take a kernel of truth from each of them probably, but I'm a big in- believer in the power of institutions um, and norms. So, you know, before I would want any given policy for a country, I would want to make sure that the institutions were in place to allow for good policy in the first place. Um, because I think institutions exist at this meta level above policy and in the long run you know over decades and generations you're not going to get good long-term policy if your long-term institutions are poor whether that's you know you talked about things like darpa and and i would call that like a funding mechanism how do we fund basic research you know are we are we funding things like DARPA or the NIH, which are you know two of the big research institutions that exist through the American government? Um, are we funding big international institutions uh, like the IMF, the the WHO, et cetera, et cetera? Um, <clears throat> so you can talk about things like that, like funding mechanisms. You can also just talk about like democratic institutions. You know, do liberal democracies grow faster than illiberal democracies? or petrostates or, you know, dictatorships, autocracies. Um, these are open questions. And, you know, I, I think the evidence is pretty good for that. And, and certainly you can read your why nations fail and, and they make a, a case for democracy and a case for liberalism being good for economic growth in the long run. But there's a whole set of institutions. You can talk about institutions at the very, very highest level of like liberal democracy being its own institution. You can talk about it at a slightly lower level, like parliamentary democracy versus presidential democracy. And then you can get all the way down into like micro institutions, like how is DARPA run? You know, how is the NIH run? How, How does funding actually get allocated from these groups? And how does that impact, you know, which projects succeed and fail? So institutions exist at all levels but very much i think the neoliberal project is is interested in that question of how do we build strong institutions because without that i really do believe you can't have good policy in the long run without good institutions it's it's kind of like an oxymoron to me mm-hmm. so yeah and i think that the idea of oh, is liberal democracy its own institution certainly at palladium i think when we try to look at uh discussions around um, the American system, uh, and you know, obviously we, we've kind of assumed this framework in some of our discussion, but we were very interested in looking at not, if we're talking about the American world order, you know, let's not assume that um, some vague specter called liberal democracy was the main thing here. Let's look at the actual decision makers and, and the, the networks that existed, right? Um, I think that with institutions, one of the big questions is uh, succession. And insofar as things seem to stop working uh, at some point in the 1970s, 
um, we can see that that was the time when there was a handoff of power going on, right? This post-war generation was finishing their careers and the, the young lions that had grown up in the, the 60s were starting to take the reins of power in at, at, at the highest level. You know, you, you have people like Kissinger coming to the fore. Um, you obviously later have, have Reagan and the people in his administration, people who ultimately were under, you know, Bush one. There seems to be, though, some kind of succession failure here. I'm interested to hear if you have any account of why this failure occurs. Well, so I think this is a story um, of, honestly, I think this is a race-related story. Um, I think that the history of the United States in large part is a history of white nationalism. Um, and, you know, for the first hundred years, it's pretty explicit. The United States from 1770 to 1870, roughly, is a slave state. Um, you know, it has lots of slaves and it treats its black people like, you know, uh, like cattle. Um, for the next hundred years after that, roughly, you know, 1870 to 1970 in rough terms, the United States is basically an apartheid state. Um, <clears throat> and you know, treat, again, treats black people less than humanely, let's say, <laughs> to put it very, sure. very lightly. And post-1970 is the only time we've had even any kind of nominal equality. But, you know, nobody would pretend that that the situation uh, for, for black people and white people in the United States it was, was in any degree equal um, put 1970 to the present. It's certainly improving over time. I think we can say that, but it's still not to where it should be. And so when I think about what happened post-1970, I think that the United States is, is still grappling with the history of racism. The reason things worked so well in the post-World War II era up to about Richard Nixon is that we had kind of this multipolar order you know, we had about four different power centers of politics rather than just having, you know, what, what we have today is one Democratic Party and one Republican Party and all the Democrats are liberals slash progressives and all the Republicans are conservatives with some sprinkling of nationalism or libertarian, libertarianism occasionally. And mm -hmm. there's like this one overwhelming identity if you are in the Rep tribe. And on, if you are on the blue tribe, there's this one overwhelming identity. And because there's just like two things that exist in polar opposite to each other, there's no room for con there's no room for compromise. There's no room for deal making anymore. You know, you if yeah. any deal making and tools is like earmarks are taken out. So, yeah. you know, it hits every level there. Yeah. I mean, it, if you're making a deal, you're making a, literally a deal with the devil because they believe yeah. exactly the opposite thing from you. And in our democracy, specifically the way American institutions are set up, America is built on compromise and political deal making. You know, we have this entire system of checks and balances where any part of the government can endlessly frustrate the other parts of the government. The courts can endlessly frustrate both the legislature and the executive when they try to do things. The legislature and the executive can endlessly stymie and block each other. That's just how we built our democracy so that we would require deal making to be done. Now, in the 1950s and 60s, you had Democrats who were liberal Democrats 
And you also had conservative Southern Democrats who, you know, we should be straight up were racist Democrats. Um, you had Republicans who were kind of the, the Western super conservative Republicans. This is the tradition that Barry Goldwater and Ronald, Ronald Reagan emerged out of. Um, mm -hmm. But you also had liberal Republicans, your Rockefeller Republicans from the Northeast. And so you actually had all these different power centers where ideology crossed party lines all the time. And so it was just an age of deal making. And, you know, it was very easy, you know, whoever controlled Congress, whoever controlled the presidency, it was very easy to work across party lines. Sometimes you would have liberal Republicans and liberal Democrats working together. Sometimes you would have liberal Republicans and conservative Republicans working together just for the sake of party. Um, so it was a very fluid time when lots and lots yeah. of people could get lots and lots of things done. And you saw lots of things happen. You know, the, the Great Society happened. Richard Nixon had lots of plans that were derailed in various parts by the Vietnam War and his impeachment. But he was a guy with big plans. You know, he wanted universal health care. That was going to be his big thing in the second term before uh, he got impeached. Yeah, I guess the, I want to touch. I want to just highlight the, this thing here that these big projects were able to happen. And I think um, in a lot of ways today, that's what people are lighting on when they talk about institutional decay. Yeah. Um, we have this this era from FDR probably until um, at least Eisenhower and Kennedy, uh, until Nixon, you know, you're pointing out yeah. Nixon, where a number of groups not only have these huge visionary projects, but are actually able to carry them out. And um, yeah. And I mean, the, they, the, the today, turning point, it's, it's almost impossible to to um, foresee anyone who not only has the ability to carry <laughs> it out, but increasingly even has a project in mind. Well, I think we have people with projects in mind. I think the, the carry it out part is the is the really tricky part. And I mean, the, the turning point from this era when you could get things done was when Lyndon Johnson passed the Civil Rights Act. And, you know, Richard Nixon swept in afterwards with the. Um, the Southern strategy. And from that point forward, the parties have really realigned to that singular vision of Republicans are only conservative and Democrats are only liberals and progressives. And from that point forward, it became impossible to get things done because you didn't have that multipolar order where it was easy to cross boundaries and cross lines. Um, you had just two groups in total opposition to each other. And the American system is not set up for that. You know, if you had a, a European style system, you know, where there's a parliament and if you win parliament, you just control everything, then polarization doesn't matter quite as much. You know, the, the French electorate right now is polarized, but Macron in what was it, 2017, won a commanding majority. So Macron got to do what he wanted regardless of how much some people liked him and some people didn't, he had total control of the levers of government. And, you know, if, if people don't... Yeah, and they kind of institutionalized the polarization yeah. through the, the second rounds of voting. For and, and I mean, the thing well. is, if people don't like Macron, eventually they're going to vote him out. But while he's there, he has total power. And, and that's not the case in America. Donald Trump can get elected with a Republican Senate and a Republican House and a Republican-controlled um, Supreme Court, and he still is able to pass, like, one major piece of legislation, and that's it. You know, he still couldn't ram through health care. He still couldn't ram through all kinds of other stuff. 
And now that the Democrats took the House in 2018, he can do basically nothing other than some executive orders and appoint some judges and, and shit post on Twitter all the time. Like that's the, the American system is just so set up to it's so set up to stymie all progress and all grand visions. You know, the the DSA, as much as I don't like them, they definitely have a grand vision for society. And I don't want a socialist America. I'm, I'm a capitalist, but I'm not going to pretend that the DSA doesn't have a vision. They've got all these big plans. Um, they just will never, ever, ever, ever be able to implement them because no DSA-oriented uh, politicians are ever going to control the presidency and both houses of Congress and the courts all at the same time. Right. Well, and I want to actually narrow down the mechanism that caused that kind of centralization of the party system, you know, or, or the parties kind of start consuming everything else in society, insofar as the parties are agglomerations of what we could call an American ruling class. What is going on here? It's actually interesting what you hinted at there, because parties have started to even subsume things that are outside of politics these days. I often speak about red tribe and blue tribe, you know, in yeah. the sense that, you know, not that I came up with those ideas, but that it's almost more accurate than Republican or Democrat to speak of these different tribes that exist. You know, if it, even the Thanksgiving dinner table is like a battleground now between these two meta groups in the society. Yeah. And, and you can think about, you know, if somebody watches NASCAR and wears a cowboy hat and listens to country music and drives a pickup truck and lives in a rural area. You know, you can know everything about their politics that you need to know just about. And, you know, maybe there's the occasional Democrat there. But like that's I, I mentioned nothing political there. But if I also told you that, you know, somebody who lives in a big urban center and has a pencil thin mustache and really likes eating quinoa and, you know, reading The New Yorker, like, again, you can draw your own conclusions. These are all tribal markers and politics has started to like encompass all these other things where like you know nascar is the con and the nfl are more conservative sports leagues and the nba is the more woke sports league and like foods are like you know eating quinoa is tribally labeled now and everything has kind of been subsumed by that so that's it yeah even even religious affiliations right like it, it's such it's such a vortex that even metaphysics gets subsumed into the party power structure by the way one thing that i've loved in the pandemic is that the catholics the pope himself has said like you don't actually have an obligation to show up at church anymore you're forgiven you're excused like don't show up it's fine you know even though that's the whole catholic thing is the the day of obligation and blah 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 mm -hmm. and now the protestants are like taking the centralization route and being like no we insist that we need to be there in person <laughs> like the evangelicals yeah, yeah. are all of a sudden all about centralization and needing to be in person together. Yeah. Well, and even, you know, the American Catholic Church has always had a sort of independent streak. Yeah. So you you since the days of, uh, you know, Tammany Hall and these party machines, um, th there has been a very Americanizing current uh, as these immigrant groups become integrated into American society. So. But yeah, like to, to, to bring it back, I guess all these things now are getting caught up in this vortex of the parties. And do, is it just a matter that like it's in the interests of party or of partisans, let's say, on the margin 
to politicize everything that they can? Or is there something else here? Well, I think it goes back to what I was talking about, about identity politics. I, I really do believe all politics are identity politics. And that goes all the way back, you know, to when we were talking about the, the good old days in the 50s and 60s when you could get projects done. It's because there were cross-cutting identities. Um, identities were important, but not monolithic. You could be both a Democrat and a Southern Jim Crow supporter. You know, you could be a Democrat and a liberal from Minnesota. Um, you could be a Republican and a conservative and a Western cowboy, or you could be a Republican and a city dweller and relatively liberal from the Northeast. You had all these cross-cutting identities. And so the identity politics were very complex and could form complex coalitions and pass legislation. These days, because identity is monolithic, you have two main groups. Um, it's just hard to get anything done. Part of our project is to introduce a third identity that's not the standard Democratic blue or Republican red tribe identity, but is, um, I, I don't know, sometimes you hear this referred to as like the gray tribe, and that usually signifies some sort of libertarian-ish, technocratic Bay Area-ish kind of tribe that's way smaller than the other two. But if you could successfully introduce a third pole into American politics, whether it's the gray tribe, whether it's the neoliberals, I think politics gets a lot healthier when there are three different power, power centers rather than just two power centers entirely opposed to each other. So when institutionally, you could kind of describe your project as the attempt to force deal making back into the structure. Yeah, this is one of those things where, you know, if people have takes about pork bar barrel spending these days, um, normally the take, it's almost become accepted wisdom at this point that, hey, actually pork bar barrel spending was really good because it let people do things that weren't straight ideology. You know, when you have two groups in the American system that are operating on straight ideology, nothing ever gets done because our system is so effective at checks and balances and blocking actions. Um where if you can get people to step outside of that for a second and get back to deal making, you know, a little bit of pork barrel politics or multipolar politics is a way to get around that to just, you know, if, if two things are, if it's a tug of war in a straight line, then only one person can ever win. And the other side has no reason to ever give ground. This is basic game theory. You know, it's a zero sum game right now between Democrats and Republicans. Absolutely zero sum. Mm -hmm. That's part of the reason I'm convinced that Donald Trump exists is that Republicans had no incentive to defect to the Democrats. You know, identity is so unidimensional, narrow in one line, that even if Donald Trump is an obvious scumbag and a charlatan and all these other things, you know, Republicans in large part just didn't defect that much. You know, in an, in an older age, when identities were more cross-cutting and they had options, you know, I can identify with this other person even if he's not the same party as me. Um, I don't think Donald Trump ever happens. Mm -hmm. Well, I, you know, the thing that strikes me though is we've discussed a, a number of policy things such as housing. The thing with these policies is that I can see um, circumstances and justifications for either side of the current structure to take them on themselves, right? Or to, to, to try and capture yeah. them. You know, maybe on the right, it's like uh, housing on free market grounds or on the left, it's housing on social justice grounds. But it 
it sounds like the thing about a tribe, and maybe this is kind of ephemeral, is that there is sort of a center of gravity. You've mentioned like social liberalism or social progressivism as a, a line, I guess, that you draw in the sand. Um, but what would you see as sort of the uncapturable center of gravity that allows something like that to be sustainable and not be subsumed in the, the duopoly system? That's very difficult, if I'm being honest. It's it's what makes the whole project difficult and why it hasn't happened yet. You know, if it was so easy, why hasn't somebody already done it? Um, sure. So in the two-party system, um, you have to affect one of the two parties. I, I have no grandiose dreams of starting some third party um, and and taking things over that way. That will absolutely never happen. But what you aim to do is to change one of the two parties through your advocacy. Um, if I'm being honest right now, we are mostly focused on the Democratic Party because I think that's where more effective change can happen. I think that the Republican Party has effectively been taken over by Donald Trump, who you know is, is pretty antithetical to most of our worldview in terms of just he's kind of an institution burner downer if that's if that's a technical phrase um rather than an institution builder he's anti-globalist where we are globalist um just in most ways he's so diametrically opposed to us and has been fairly effective in taking over the republican party that that it's hard for me to imagine at least on a national level um influencing them in the short run i think in the democratic party is again, fighting similar battles where there's a there's an, an impulse towards the far left. You see that with the Bernie Sanders moment, the DSA. But the Democratic Party has a lot more success thus far in holding it off and kind of being receptive to kind of some of the neoliberal ideas that we care about, whether it's, you know, retaining the idea that capitalism is not a bad thing, but that we should have a strong welfare state anyway. Um, retaining the idea that immigration and trade are good. These are active battles that you see in the Democratic Party. You know, what should be the role of trade? Um, and, and that's actually an interesting question on its own because the parties are in the process of flipping on trade where, you know, Republicans used to be free traders and uh, Democrats used to be labor union protectionists. And now the, the parties are very quickly reversing themselves, even though you still have some holdouts on either side. Yeah, well, and I see it on, on other issues as well, like the security state, for example. Um, the the big flip that I see some, but not as many people as should be talking about it, is like the CIA, right? If you were to go into the 80s and tell people that you would have conservative-aligned outlets publishing anti-CIA stuff and sort of liberal-aligned outlets posting stuff defending the CIA and, and the, you know, quote-unquote deep state as patriotic defenders of, of American <laughs> civility. Yeah, I mean... People would think you the, were insane. The Blue Tribe on Twitter likes the deep state in so much as Trump is angry at them at that current moment, you know? Like, sure. James Comey goes between being a vilified asshole and, and a resistance hero, depending on the day of the week and... And what the uh, what Donald Trump is saying about him on on Twitter. So that's that's just a right. little bit of silly tribalism there. But but I want to push you on on one point here, which is um, the efficacy of like burning down institutions. 
So I think this is probably one of the big differences between West Coast mentality and like DC, New York mentality. And maybe it comes from the fact that there are just many, many older and more established institutions on the East Coast. But there is always a hesitancy kind of on the East Coast to just say this institution is no longer functioning. Let's like excise it and rebuild. Whereas obviously the West Coast mentality is all about this idea of disruption and, you know, the idea that if an institution has stopped functioning, it's easier to build a new one that is properly structured and oriented towards the interests of those who create it. Mm -hmm. Like th there's this concept of owned versus unowned power uh, institutions that uh, comes from Samo Boria, who, who has written for us. And the idea here is that when an institution like a bureaucracy is no longer effectively owned, that is to say, the institution um, runs according to the interests of particular sub-segments within it, rather than the interests of the person or institution that created it. At that point, it's often hard to salvage it, and it's easier to just create a new institution. And so it sounds like you agree with the take that a lot of American institutions have decayed and are no longer functional. Why then not burn them down? So I think this is, I think this is a matter of two things. Number one, it's the level of institution we're talking about, and number two, it's it's a matter of practicality. Um, the, we're stuck in a sense with the governing system that we have. I, I know that. Palladium has, you know, what future of governance or governance innovation or yeah, governance yeah. future. But the thing is, we're we're not going to get a new constitution. Just let let let's be real. Sure. The United States Constitution is not changing. Um, where the Electoral College, for instance, is not going anywhere. I would love for the Electoral College to to be abolished, um, but it's not going to be. That's that's just not yeah. a realistic. I mean, there's outcome. a reason I think we're interested yeah. in looking at cities in America and countries abroad rather than uh, America. So that's one thing is is you know the some of the things we're talking about are so big that they can't be burned down. Um, but the other thing when I talk about Trump's burn it downism and and why I think that's destructive, I think we have to talk about the level of institutions that we're talking about. So. When you talk about institutions that aren't working, that need to be rethought or maybe just totally destroyed and started over, I, I think about things like, okay, what if we're talking about like the current welfare system, you know, like TANF, Temporary Assistance for Needy Families, is structured in a really bad way, we could argue, and it would be way better if we just abolish the whole thing, got get rid of TANF and food stamps and housing vouchers and just give people a basic income. That would be an instance of burn it down ism that I think would be potentially helpful, you know, without without making any grand statement about whether UBI is a good thing or not. That's that's the kind of thing that you could look at that and say, OK, I, I can see the case for that. You know, that kind of institutional reform coming in a very, very quick, dramatic way. Um, the the cases that I don't think are as valid are, are higher level, where if you go above the design of a particular program or the design of a particular department and you think about things like Trump, you know, attacking the actual legitimacy of voting. And, and we don't even notice this. It's it's passe now to talk about how Trump did a bad thing. Orange man is bad. Anybody mm -hmm. notice that? Like this is very cliche at this point and everybody knows Trump is an idiot. But it, it bears repeating that like in the last week, here's some things Trump has done. Literally in the last week, he's been president for three and a half years at this point. In the last week, he called 
election outcome fake in California because he didn't like the way the votes were trending at first. Um, he's fired uh, independent prosecutors that were investigating people in his party, um, connected to his party. He's fired like four of them at this point, I think, is where we've, we've been. Um, you know, he does things like use his political power to pressure foreign governments to investigate his opponents. Like that you, we could just go on and on and on. And these are like very high level institutional things about like the way liberal democracy actually operates. And when you start to talk about like, well, let's blow up that stuff. Let's blow up the independence of the judiciary. Let's blow up, you know, the way that elections are run in this country. Like that's where I'm going to be like, no, I actually think that the deeper level American institutions that have served us for a couple hundred years those we should resist blowing up and starting over because, you know, the deeper level institutions that America has are, have been pretty solid for, for quite a while. Um, sure. But so let, let me put it this way, right? Um, if I'm a company and I have a particular project going that is supposed to, you know, create a new product or something like that, um, and I'm pouring money in, but it slowly becomes evident that the thing is entirely dysfunctional. Um, the choice seems to become at some point, if it's a big enough project and it's taking up, up enough resources, maybe the only way that you preserve the company is to terminate that project. And I guess this is the way that I'm thinking about it, because you, you, I, you're touching on something here where the discourse is that the fundamental American institutions are at such grave risk that you, you see these crazy things like flipping opinions on the security state. Um, but in that case... I'm almost surprised to not hear people taking that stance, not explicitly naming more failed sub-level institutions or norms or something like this. You're, so the, the Electoral College might be an exception to that. But um, I guess I would just almost expect to see more of a disruption attitude from the people trying to save the fundamental structure that I'm actually seeing. Well, so I, I think we have a, a pretty pretty large number of ways that we would fundamentally restructure American society. Um, we haven't touched on all of them here, but, you know, it, it's one of the reasons I don't like to use centrist or moderate uh, that much to describe who we are, because we're not, you know, centrist is just a squishy way of saying I, I align myself between two opposites. I'm in the middle. Both sides have good points. Um, and, and that's not what we are. And moderate is more of a descriptor of, of a different ideology. You know, you can be a extremist neoliberal or a moderate neoliberal. You can be a extremist socialist or a moderate socialist. Um, but, you know, if you look at what we're actually trying to do, what our, you know, policy positions are, you know, we want to basically have radically increased immigration, radically increased, uh, well, it wouldn't be that radical, but, you know, increased trade, um, you know, burn down zoning all across the country. That's one where I'd be happy to burn down a lot of local institutions is is just get rid of zoning everywhere to to a first approximation. Zoning is bad. Um, and there's there's like instances where you could say, OK, this bit of zoning is good. But to a first approximation, just zoning is bad, period. Um, occupational licensing is another one where, you know, we would make major changes and we could go through these over and over. But like there are a lot of areas where we would make pretty radical change into kind of the existing um, 
the existing political infrastructure. It's just sometimes orthogonal to red tribe, blue tribe politics that, you know, the Yimbyism thankfully is not, is not designated red or blue at this point, which I think gives it a chance to succeed. I think as soon as something like that gets associated with only one political party, it's, it's going to be much more difficult. But, uh, but so th- that's, that's one of the ways that I would respond in terms of there are ways that we want to radically change things. It's just, I don't, I view radical change on like the fundamental levels of liberal democracy to be an enormous danger. Um, and, and that's not mm-hmm. something I'm, I'm interested in. This is the liberal and neoliberal. Yeah. And I consider myself a liberal at just about every level because, you know, words have different definitions, but uh, I would be a neoliberal in the sense that, that that's, that's how I describe myself. I'm an American liberal in that at the, current time, I would align more towards the Democratic Party than the Republican. Um, I'm a European liberal in the sense that I'm a capitalist, you know, in Europe, liberal often just means do you believe in the market economy or not? And for me, that's very much a yes. Um, I'm a philosophical liberal and that my heroes are people like, like John Stuart Mill, you know, who's one of the great fathers of, of, you know, philosophical political liberalism. So I, I consider myself a liberal first and a neoliberal second. Um, so I, you know, that's, that's me trying to defend liberal democracy and as an overall system that has done pretty well over the last couple hundred years. And it is worth defending in my opinion. So there's a lot of other topics we could go on here. I'm, I'm aware of our time. We've been going, uh, nearly a hundred minutes so far. Um, I'd love to talk more, for example, about like, you know, the functionality and utility of markets and so on. So perhaps we'll have to have a part two of uh, this discussion. I'd like to end on this question, though, because we've talked a lot about cities. If we were to look for a city in America that people are not looking at, but should, which city do you think that would be? Hmm, That's a great question. Give me give me just a second to think about that. Sure. I get the reason I ask this is if we take uh, this discussion we've had about how many different cities play a role in the American structure and how there have historically been these multiple players, it seems like one of the most effective ways for that to change is that a city comes up that currently does not have as many ties. Seattle is an interesting one to me. Um, It's been this alternative tech center for a while, but I think it has even less of a distinctive political project tied to it than even uh, San Francisco does. so, yeah, I, I, this would be the context of the question. I, I think Seattle is an interesting candidate there and that Seattle kind of flies under the radar as a second tier San Francisco, so to speak. Not not like second tier is an insult, but just that they are not quite at the same scale of, of tech company as uh, as San Francisco is. But and Seattle is also one of the few cities that I think has done a good job building housing. Um, Seattle has built quite a lot of housing in the last few decades. And thus, you know, rents are moderately expensive there, but but to a level you can af- afford. Yeah, I mean, I've been to, I, I spent, a, you know, a lot of my life in Vancouver, uh, Canada, and I went back and forth between Vancouver and Seattle quite a bit. And it always struck me just the difference between the two, where in Vancouver, you essentially have a downtown core surrounded by a bunch of far-flung suburb towns, whereas you go through Seattle and it really feels much more like you're in a city. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I think that's definitely true. The, the, and this is what we've been talking about, right? 
the whether a city is being well run is very evident very quickly. One of the other places I would highlight is Colorado. Um, and this is a little bit cheating mm-hmm. to give a whole state rather than the city. Uh, Denver sure. Denver is obviously kind of the, the alpha city of, of Colorado. Um, it's the Paris of Colorado, let's say. <laughs> um, but Colorado has um, a lot of really interesting politics going on and, and very neoliberal politics, I would say. You know, they've, there's a lot of extremely neoliberal politicians from Colorado. Uh, John Hickenlooper, uh, who had a, a very short aborted run for president and is now running for Senate and is favored to win that Senate seat. Um, you've got Michael Bennett, who may have been the most neoliberal candidate that existed in the race, um, who had all sorts of incredibly interesting ideas. Um, you have Jared Polis, governor of the state, who is doing all sorts of really interesting stuff. Jared Polis is um, decriminalizing drugs. He's uh, revoking certain things on occupational licensing reform. He is, uh, you know, expanding the welfare state in Colorado while still keeping it a business friendly state. Um, He's kind of, you know, focusing on let's do good things like early childhood education programs. But, you know, that that's the Democratic part of being a Democratic governor. But he's also got a libertarian streak in that he's keeping the state very business friendly. so Jared Polis is one of my favorite politicians in the country right now. Um, so Colorado is somewhere I would point that has a lot of interesting things going on um, and and just is potentially a place to look for what what a future model of good governance looks like without having to without having to overthrow things. You know, one of the big questions that exists in the age of Trump is to what degree has the world permanently changed? Trumpism is this new thing and people aren't sure to what degree like oh my gosh this is just what politics are now or in order to defeat trumpism we must have this incredible radical change you know so trump will tell you this is the new permanent majority this is how american politics are going to work the radical left will tell you you can't defeat trump unless you do this radical left you know opposite program to the radical right and it's an open question you know if joe biden gets elected in 2020 to what degree can we just go back to normal and and have normal incremental good politics like like what I see happening in Colorado where you know there's no there's no like massive new model of governance that's happening in Colorado there's no you know massive institutional earthquake happening but what's happening is a lot of really sound policy implemented by a lot of really smart people um and and I you know I think that those sort of things could be one way to go into the future that maybe we don't need that earthquake if we can just get more people like jared polis in office it i don't know it's an open question and there's no way to answer it for now well i i think it's a good ball take i i know there's a rabbit here we could go down on what is normal scene politics and so uh as as i'll hear about it nobody is normal in politics everybody in politics is a weirdo and like an obsessive and and more so than anyone knows. <laughs> well, and power just often ends up not not looking very normal when one gets into the weeds of it. But uh, you know, we this was a, a great discussion, uh, Jeremiah. So again, that was Jeremiah Johnson, co-founder of the Neoliberal Project and host of the Neoliberal Podcast. Uh, you can view the, those projects at neoliberalproject.org, and the Twitter account is at neoliberal with a zero, not an O. Jeremiah, thanks again for your time. This is a fantastic discussion, 
uh, you know, we'll, we'll have to continue it again and go through some of these overlooked uh, rabbit holes. Thanks again. Thanks, Ash. Happy to be here. 